Hello everyone, welcome to the People's Podcast with myself, Taj Ali and Basit Mahmood. Basit, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, good, how are you? Yeah, we're good, man. So what's the latest, man? Uh, another tough week in the media, lots of stuff kicking off, lots of lone wolves attacking Capitol Hill. Pretty normal stuff, isn't it? Um, the reason we've set up the People's Podcast is actually to give working class people a voice in a media industry where working class people are underrepresented, ethnic minority people are underrepresented, um, and Muslim people are underrepresented. And that's the issue we are going to be discussing today. You know, Muslims, misrepresentation, and moral panic. So what are the stats, Basit? So if you look at the media, what a lot of people don't realise is the second most socially exclusive profession in the country. So less than 11% of journalists come from working class backgrounds, less than 0.2% so are black, 0.4% are Muslim, 94% um, white industry, 80% of editors are privately schooled. So it's quite a socially elite profession. And one of the reasons kind of, I remember you saying to me why you once set up, set up this podcast was to give people from working class backgrounds more of a voice, more of a platform for the issues. Because when you have a composition of the media like that, then it turns out that the news values, what we decide, what issues are important, how those stories are told, all that's influenced by the demographic of that kind of profession. Absolutely. So many stories that are outrageous, you know, that need to be told, are not told. Yeah. And, and, you know, for example, that's one of the reasons I went into the media to share those stories around, you know, people, for example, who got kicked out of school early and, you know, found themselves alongside the law. Those, you know, that kind of looking at issues around crime, looking at issues of poverty, looking at issues of inequality, Islamophobia, yeah. um, which I don't think is, and we'll, talk about the later on it isn't reflected much in the in the kind of mainstream press and that's one of the reasons we kind of set up yeah. this podcast i mean speaking about islamophobia there was a new report that came out recently um about one of the moral panics that we've seen recently about grooming gangs could you just talk us through that yeah so there's this i don't know if people remember so there's this idea that uh, there was a claim made that by the Cullium foundation um which is run by modern Nuance, uh, that 84 percent of grooming gangs are made up of uh, South Asian men. Mm. Now, what happened was that claim was picked up by newspaper, newspapers and news organizations up and down the country. And I, I, one of the things I've always said to Taj is that basically, when you're, making, when you're discussing these headlines in a newsroom, sometimes you're divorced from the impact it has on those communities. Now that stat was picked up, it was reported on, it led to you know, empowering far right in our, home, in our hometown. Obviously we care about the victims and you know, we shouldn't, use sensationalist headlines to kind of blame an entire community. Now, what happened was that stat, the Home Office released a report three weeks ago, three to four weeks ago, saying that that stat wasn't actually, you know, you couldn't really conclude that stat and it didn't really hold up to scrutiny. You know what annoys um, me is, you know, someone like Majin Nawaz, the Quilliam Foundation, it really illuminates that it's not just about underrepresentation, it's about the type of representation we have. So if we look at the types of Muslims that are given a platform on the mainstream media, we have two extremes. We have the al-Muhajiroon extremist types. You know, sensationalism essentially drives that, you know. But we also have the so-called moderates of Islam who basically say the same thing as the Islamophobes. But because, you know, the whole token representation thing comes into it, they're given a free pass. Um, so for me, what really angers me is like this individual has said certain things about the Muslim community, you know, we are extremists and such and such. Uh, um, and, you know, there's no level of scrutiny there. Why aren't 
ordinary Muslims like yourself, people from Bradford, Birmingham, Luton, why aren't these ordinary Muslims given a platform? I think there's one of the saddest things is because of the demographic of the media, right? It's such a socially exclusive profession. So for example, over 91% of internships are unpaid. And me and you both know, I remember when you met up with me a couple, you know, couple of months ago that basically you need experience. And if 91% of internships are unpaid, 46% of the Muslim community live in the 10 poorest local authority areas, then obviously it's only going to be a certain type of person that's able to access the media. And it's about diversifying those newsrooms. And the other reason why aren't these issues, you know, you ask me, because we have to be honest, I've said this before, that it's like asking, asking an arsonist to put out a fire. A lot of people who we're asking to speak up on anti-Muslim prejudice or organizations, yeah. they kind of added fuel to the fire, you know, and, yeah. you know, printed sensationalist things and inaccurate things about British Muslims. Yeah. Which um, presentation, I mean, you're from a working class background, you know, as a Muslim. Um, what is that like in the newsroom, you know, being the only minority or coming from a working class background? It is tough. I mean, I remember being the only minority, as you said, on the news desk a couple of years ago. And it's, it is. So what, what happens is the way issues are discussed and portrayed, given your upbringing, given your lived experience, is going to be different to how others see it. I don't see poverty or Islamophobia or inequality as an abstract idea. You know, I, growing up in Luton, where more than four in 10 children live in poverty, it wasn't something that just I was divorced from, I could just write about in a very, very way. And, you know, I remember once this example I give to people, there was a story about Anjum Chowdhury and one of the press agencies had forwarded it through. And then it said he was spotted at McDonald's and Muslims aren't allowed to go to McDonald's. Okay. Which I was like, I mean, I, luckily I was there in that environment and I spotted it and they correctly, they quickly, I said, look, that's not true. And I see big man's like you tried to get him a clothes from the so basically yeah that wasn't true and it is tough but one of the things that you picked up on was class and i think when you look at a lot of representation you know it's about class as well and a lot of the journalists received it's not just about bane journalists a lot of some bane journalists were given prominent roles yeah. there's over representation of those that went to private school backgrounds so it's about class as well to kind of share the experience i mean even myself you know i didn't know you can write opinion pieces without a journalism qualification. You know, if you didn't tell me, yo, Tad, you know what, you can actually write about this topic, you can pitch it, I would never have given it a go. Um, and even since I've started writing, I get so many people come up to me and saying, you know what, I want to start writing. And I say, why not? Because you don't need to have a qualification. I mean, I've seen people, you know, with so-called qualifications, writing complete nonsense about the Muslim community. So why can't an ordinary person talk about our lived experience. I think that's an angle that's missing from the media in this country. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also about, you know, we don't see ourselves as represented in the world of literature. Like, I remember saying to someone, mate, you know, you should become a journalist. And they're like, bro, what? Um, I remember my own relatives looking at me like with a blank face thinking, why are you going into journalism? And, you know, we always said that, that Malcolm X quote about the media being one of the most powerful weapons in the world and can make oppressors look like, you know, the victims and the victims look like the, the oppressors. And, and the sad thing is, yeah. You know, we need we need to kind of challenge. So internally, we need to challenge those barriers around, you know, yeah. is journalism for me? Is it a professional course? Yeah. And then at the same time, look at why it matters and why we need those voices. So would I be right in saying, like, your personal experience of Islamophobia led you to consider, you know, getting involved? Yeah, man, look, I, 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 I really annoyed um, people. People were annoyed at me, sorry, to going into media because they were thinking, you know what, you've got a good job. What happened was... Um, I remember seeing this headline, one in five Muslims support ISIS yeah. on the TV. And people, I saw people reading this and it was on the front page. 
yeah. then it was, it was discovered that that wasn't an actual fact and, you know, it's distorted and all of that. But that had an impact where I was growing up, watching EDL, watching Britain First, yeah. it's all useful as well. And then my mum kind of being subjected to, she told me once, you know, being subjected to Islamophobic abuse. And then she said to me, you know what? I was like, why don't you report it? And she said, I'm not going to report it because what's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. That's what her, so I thought, you know, there's no point in just complaining. I'm going to get involved in the media. Um, you know, 64%, I think, I read somewhere that British British people get their information about the media from, um, about Muslims from the media. And I thought, yeah. you know what, rather than just complaining, it's best to get involved and try and change some of that narrative and accurately reflect our stories. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, right? People don't realise that Islamophobia, it has an impact, you know. It's our daily lived reality as a Muslim. And even the fact that you have to go out of your way to talk about this issue, you know. I always see you tweeting about Islamophobia. And people say, you know, even me, like I write about Islamophobia. People are like, why are you always writing about that for? And I say because no one's listening. You know, nobody else is talking about it enough. Um, and it's it's sad the, tough thing, the sad thing is, like, I don't like people misunderstand this. Like, I don't like writing about Islamophobia because I don't find it enjoyable. You're asking me to write about, you know, hatred and animosity towards people who share the same faith as me. But the reason we have to write about it is because others ignore it, and it's become an acceptable form of prejudice. Um, and we can provide the stats later on in this podcast, and I've got yeah. all the stats about how inaccurate stories have impacted us. But, you know, if we don't, then who else will? And the sad thing is we want to write about other things, but if you can't convince people of our humanity, then how are we going to do it? Yeah, I mean, let's look at the Labour Party. You know, recently a report came out, I think it was the Labour Muslim Network. Uh, I think it found one in four had some experience of Islamophobia in the party. This is, you know, the centre-left party in British politics, and you've got a um, widespread Islamophobia in the party. I mean, what hope is there for the rest of the country? Well, I mean, that's before we even look at Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Um, and the sad thing is, yeah. you know, it's, it's um, people always say to me, you know, Islamophobia is an issue on the right. Why, uh, you know, it's not an issue on the left. It's just an issue on the right. And that's just not the case. You've seen that with people on the left ignoring what's happening to Uyghur Muslims in China. Um, so you've seen that. I wrote a piece on Islamophobia in the Labour Party. Um, and whilst I was writing the piece, something comes out about a millionaire property developer. Um, I think, I forgot his name now. But I think it's David Abrahams. That's it, David Abraham. So he's been donating to the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. Um, and this person has said Muslim youth have a propensity for suicide. He's made various, you know, Islamophobic remarks. And no action has been taken. We saw the Labour leadership talk about taking firm action against Islamophobia and reaching it out. Um, but I want to see them walk the walk because I'm not seeing it right now. Yeah, and I think a lot of British Muslims have contacted me and said, look, mm. we need to tackle Islamophobia on the left and right. And people think that because, you know, has the Labour Party got complacent? I mean, they said they were going to tackle it and they were going to look at it. I know LMN Ali Milani, who co-authored that report, met up with Keir Starmer. Uh, but the sad thing is, you know, look, the Labour Party isn't in power and the job of journalism is to kind of report on everything and everywhere, but it's also to hold power to account. That's one of the main, and I say this and I include myself in this and I include others in this, I say, how many of us have held the Conservative Party to account of Islamophobia? Mm. Party and government. I mean, we talked about Islamophobia and the Labour Party. In the Conservative Party, which is the party of government, Hope Not Hate done a report where they found, you know, they, they polled members and they found that 57% of Conservative Party members believe that there are no-go zones in the UK which are run under, you know, Sharia law. You know, places like Luton, we've got Bury Park, right? Tommy Robinson, the EDL, they often talk about it's a no-go zone for non-Muslims yeah. and all the rest of it. 
Um, and these are the party members of the party of government. Um, and it goes right to the top because we've got the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. When he made those remarks that he did about Muslim women looking like, you know, who wear burqas looking like letterboxes, we saw a 400% increase in Islamophobic hate crime. So we can't divorce, you know, the rhetoric from the reality, can we? No, and, and the sad thing is, you know, I remember there was horrific examples of one woman being urinated on, people using that language, letterbox bank robbers, when they were increased, you know, tell mama recovered a spike in, in hate crimes against Muslim women. But the thing is, what annoys me is that it's almost become, you know, I'm begging other journalists, and that I use that word like exactly how I mean that, to report on Islamophobia, because the sad thing is, you know, 58% of Tory members believe there should be a no-go zone. So we've had Conservative Party members reinstated who basically said mosques should be banned, Muslims shouldn't be allowed to be in the UK, Muslims should be sterilised and thrown off bridges. Yeah. Uh, and that's not really being reported on, and that was submitted by the MCB. And I'll get, just give you a quick fact, like, the Daily Telegraph didn't cover that story at all, the Daily Mail didn't cover that story at all. And the question then I ask is, is there a hierarchy of racism? Are we willing to accept that? You know, and the sad thing is we've had inaccurate story after inaccurate stories. And then when something bad happens, it, it's just like, well, it receives a shrug of the shoulders. And yeah. I've said this before to you that the important point is, is if they, there's two things here. You've, you've cited facts, right? From hope. How can someone disagree with the facts? You just cited facts from hope not hate. So yeah. either they're denying it's a problem, in which case it flies in the face of the facts, or they think, you know what? The Islam, Islamophobes have got a point. I mean, from what I've read, I think the vast majority of Conservative Party members, when they were policy, they don't see an issue of Islamophobia. And even Boris Johnson himself in 2005, he actually wrote that Islamophobia is a natural reaction to Islam. So I think it's not even about denying the problem. It's about they don't even care that it's a problem. But then let's, then what happens is usually people want to start playing semantics, right? Mm. Oh, Islamophobia is a phobia. It's like, oh, you know what? And I'm thinking... And we'll come on to this later on. They say, oh, you know, you're trying to shut down criticism or it's not racism. Muslims aren't a race. And the argument makes no sense. We'll come on to that. But the sad thing is, it's, you know, I look at, you know, we're going to move on to quickly to the EHRC, right? I've written stories about the EHRC as a journalist and people yeah. can check. But this is an equalities body whose job it is to root out or to enforce the equality law, tackle racism, Home, you know, homophobia or disability, people who are being kind of discriminated on the basis of disability, you know, to tackle all of those things. And when it comes to Islamophobia and the Conservative Party, thus far, despite over a year ago, the Conservatives around and announced their own independent investigation, mm. led by someone, Professor Swaran Singh, who's been pulled up on this, who basically said Muslims have a victimization kind of, he's accused them of a victimization mentality. He's heading that independent yeah. investigation to all forms of prejudice, and still the EHRC won't investigate well the ehrc actually said we're going to have this investigation and then they dropped it and you know we often when we talk about racism we should talk about who are the victims of racism so if the muslim council of britain has called for an inquiry repeatedly you know so many and 100 mosques 100 mosques i wrote a story about 100 mosques up and down the country yeah saying 100 that's 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 quite significant saying investigate yeah they've said that we're not going to do it at this stage yeah, which, which just demonstrates, you know, and you wrote a piece for Newsweek, actually, looking at the EHRC. Um, I think you spoke to the only Muslim and the only black um, commissioner, um, which I found quite interesting, actually. Yeah, so now they've got, obviously, new commissioners, um, but at the, this was before the new commissioners were appointed, I think, last, about a couple of months, two months ago, I think. But yeah. um, there was no, this was a race, this was a body who's in charge of, for example, tackling racism. And there's no black or Muslim commissioner on this. So I'm thinking that's a bit odd. 
So I contacted uh, the two commissioners involved. Yeah. Um, and basically they said that they, they, they were told and they felt that they, because they were too vocal about racism, yeah. they weren't reappointed to their roles. And this is a body whose job it is to tackle racism. I put that to the HRC and they said, look, all our, you know, we do, we're trying to, at this stage, we haven't started to investigate because it was quite bright. It's quite. And then I also discovered one of the commissioners, uh, Patrick Cooper's commissioner, had donated money to the Conservative Party and hadn't declared that on her register of interest. And this is meant to be an impartial, completely, it has to be a completely impartial organisation. So if this organisation can't root out discrimination within its own organisation, how on earth are they going to do that in the rest of the country? Like, it's beyond belief. I think there was a new commissioner, um, Goodhart, I think, uh, and he basically has said a, a number of things which I find really odd for someone sitting on a board which is, you know, investigating equalities and human rights. He downplayed the very real um, injustice within the criminal justice system. So when Black Lives Matter talked about, you know, the disparities in sentencing in the criminal justice system, he kind of downplayed that. He talked about how we should not see an end to the hostile environment. Um, and this comes just before the EHRC is actually investigating the government over, you know, the Windrush scandal, you know, and he's kind of dismissed Islamophobia in the past. So how on earth is this guy in the EHRC? It makes no sense at all. The EHRC, the commission is appointed by Equalities Commission um, and the government kind of oversees that. So, Which is really odd. Surely it should be an independent body, no? Yeah. But, I mean, uh, Richard Sharp has been appointed and he was questioned in Parliament. This is a public record. Mm. He's been appointed by, well, Boris Johnson. He was Boris Johnson. He's Boris Johnson's preferred candidate for um, chairman of the BBC. And yeah. he, was, he, he, he donated money to the Conservative Party and he donated money to Quilliam. And he said that he wanted to combat extremism. But as you've just highlighted some of the problems with Quilliam. Yeah. And this is the thing, right? Um, I think we should move on to the topic of moral panic. Uh, because they often say things like, you know, we're doing this because we're combating extremism. We don't hate Muslims. We just hate the radicals, you know, the radical Muslims. Um, so could you just talk us through what moral panic is? So moral panic, I came across it in a book by a man called Stanley Cohen called Folk Devils and Moral Panic. And moral panic is when you whip up a panic about a particular kind of, this is the way I understand it, a group or a certain issue in society, you know, uh, kids, um, but fa complete family breakdown, for example, and tabloid media hear about. But then where I'm really interested in moral panics is the idea of the Muslims as like an enemy within a fifth column, you know, yeah. taking over your schools and they're taking over the whole country and they're gonna ban Christmas and they're gonna- the newsroom. Yeah, and they're gonna ban Halal me. And I'm like, what? And then they usually say there's a no-go zone, but then they're in the no-go zone to tell you about the no-go zone, which never really made exactly. sense. I mean, Britain first, they love coming to Bury Park, man. I'd be, you know, probably going to have chicken chips down there. No yeah, yeah. some of them probably stopped off on the way to some yeah. of the Halal yeah. chip shops. Yeah. They left yeah. them off. But the but sad things are more, right? more um, panic is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say like with moral panics and everything, there's a consequence for it because it's not just Britain first marching into Bury Park and trying to agitate the local people. It's also the violence and the hate crime that we see, you know, the horrific deaths of Muslim worshippers in New Zealand. And closer to home, there was the death of Muhammad Salim, you know, um, a man from Birmingham who passed away in 2013. I remember watching that on the BBC and he was attacked just because he looked Muslim. The man didn't stop him and ask him, are you Muslim? He, you know, he killed him. Um, so there is a consequence to all of this, isn't yeah. it? Well, yeah, and, and you know, I'll give you a couple of 
I, I term them as miscarriages of justice. Like, for example, there was this Trojan horse plot in Birmingham yeah. in which it's alleged that Muslims are taking up school. So the point about moral panic is it's a, the, I think the way Stanley Cohen kind of really defined it was it's something that's a major threat that can affect most of you, most of the country. And yeah. um, so Muslims taking over schools was this idea, and it turned out that that wasn't actually the case. The teachers yeah. were suspended, but then they were yeah. exonerated. And then you had this chat about, you know, Muslims forcibly adopting white Christian children. So can you see the moral panic? White innocent Christian child being forcibly adopted by Muslims. But that turned out that story, yeah. you know, had loads of inaccuracies on it. And, and lots of people jumped on that story. So, you know, again, it's like the Muslims are a massive threat. They're coming for you. But it's just, you know, those, and, and I think what happens with moral panics, I think they used to kind of, um, smear an entire community on occasions, and that's that's what needs to be kind of stopped. You, you talked about the school thing, and I remember because I was I went to Chorney Boys, right, which was like predominantly Muslim school. I think it was like ninety five percent Muslim. In our whole year, there was probably one white person, and he, even him, he was Irish, right? So I went to the school predominantly Muslim, right? Um, and I remember twenty fourteen, Israel bombed Gaza. You know, I was in year ten, I was about fifteen, yeah. And a group of us, we said, you know what, we want to raise some money for the children in Gaza, you know, medical aid, you know, so we proposed, the, you know, to our head teacher and whatever, we said we want to raise some money. Um, and what actually happened was, I remember one teacher actually come up to us and said, are you sure the money's not going to ISIS, you know, which was crazy, you know, we're trying to raise money for children and you're trying to make that out like we're some radical extremists for trying to help children, you know. Um, so my experience in school actually I think there was a fear to be, you know, like with the teachers and everything, they were, they were scared. Even one of the teachers mentioned that, you know, the Daily Mail are going to try and smear us in this way and whatever. But there's also the institutional aspect of it, which is, for example, the prevent agenda, you know, state sanctioned Islamophobia, in my opinion, where, um, you know, public servants are now required to report the signs of radicalization uh, with guidance, which is quite frankly, pathetic. Um, so I remember one of my mates, right, we had these leaflets which were on Palestine, you know, um, talking about human rights. Um, and one of my friends who was not really into Palestine, whatever, he was just reading a leaflet, right? Um, and a supply teacher actually pulled him up and said, I need you to speak to this man. The man turned out to be a special constable based in the school. And he started quizzing him about where's this leaflet from, you know, trying to ask him about his views on religion and all sorts of things. Guy said, I bought the leaflet from Selborough Bosque. You know, and I started laughing. I was like, why are, you, why are you bringing up the mosque, man? They don't need to go through that. So I told him, I said, you know what? I gave him the leaflet. We're, we're just talking about Palestine in school. What's the issue? But the fact that there was a special constable based in our school, you know, we, from a young yes. age, we were alerted as young people of what Islamophobia is like, not just from the far right, but from the government itself. You know, there was a friend of mine who actually had police officers come to his house and knock on his door and interrogate him because he was wearing a Palestine badge. Um, so this is the lived reality that we as Muslims face because of Islamophobia. And I think it's important to realize that we're not saying this, I'm certainly not saying this just for the sake of the Muslim community, because if you want to defeat extremism, which is incredibly important, we have to defeat extremism. You know, you can't do that in a climate of fear in which young children bottle up views and those views then go unchallenged. Mm. And then what will happen is, you know, they stay unchallenged, they bottle them up and they'll go online. And that's where a lot of, radicalization takes place online so you can't if we want to defeat extremism we can't have conditions which are then you know aiding and abetting kind of the extremists because extremists have come around and say told you you can't talk about this and you know i remember it's important that we have these discussions out in the open and we can't foster a climate of fear which is the very climate in which extremism thrives in but 
you know, this extremism, um, sorry, the dehumanization of Muslims doesn't just, you know, lead to no impact. Now, I want to talk about kind of what's happening to the Uyghurs in um, China now, obviously over a million Uyghurs in detention camps, uh, you know, forced sterilizations, forced labor. How do you feel about, I mean, you've seen this, but what, do you think the left's kind of, do you think some people on the left have ignored what's happening? You know what it is, the way I see Islamophobia, it's a political tool, you know, it serves an agenda. The whole threat-based narrative, we saw it after 9-11, you know, even the Iraq war, it was kind of, you know, portrayed as a civilizing mission, you know, we need to go into Iraq and give them democracy and whatever. And it, it did rely on the dehumanization of Muslims and the portrayal of Muslims as extremists. So I think that model, the war on terror model has been exported overseas. Um, and what we're starting to see overseas is governments, authoritarian governments who are pushing these policies, you know, um, you know, emancipation, they use these kinds of words to describe policies they are doing. Um, and they portray it definitely. And it's kind of, it mirrors colonial rhetoric quite a, quite a lot. So uh, Rudyard Kipling, he talked about the white man's burden, which was this idea that colonialism was justified because the white man has to go overseas and give these so-called savages democracy and give them our values, you know? Um, and we are seeing that same kind of colonial rhetoric. So yes, on the left, some have, you know, kind of saw, you know, the what China's doing as yeah. you know, justified because, you know, and it's frustrating because what China is doing is very similar to what the neocons have been doing on the right, you know, so for me, it's about just consistency. Um, and I will say even overseas, um, for example, even the liberals, you know, you've got Macron, he's talking about, you know, all over the world, Islam is in crisis, and he's enacted some laws to kind of, so, to try and what he calls integrate Muslims. So I think it goes across the political spectrum, it goes across borders. Um, and I think the onus is really upon the Muslim community to kind of get into the media, get into politics and challenge these narratives mm -hmm. about us. Now, it's a good point you raised about the war on terror narrative, because what's happened is in Burma, there was a genocide against Rohingya Muslims, right? Yeah. And what's happening in India, and I say in Kashmir, seven million, seven million people were locked down long before the world knew what lockdown was. Uh, internet, longest running internet shutdown in any democracy in Kashmir, forced disappearances, torture, the UN yeah. have kind of condemned that, human rights watch have condemned that. And what really annoys me is when people say to me, why don't the Muslims ever talk about what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims in China? It's because, you know, you only want to criticize the West. Well, first of all, using the opinions and um, statements of autocrats and dictators and saying that's synonymous with Muslim public opinion just isn't the case. But then you can turn around the question and say, how come, you know, we're consistent. I'm talking about Islam for being China, India, Europe, everywhere. But then how come we won't talk about, how come some of the journalists won't talk about what's happening to Muslims in India where yeah. people have been of citizenship, lynched right. to death in You're public? Right. right, and this is the thing, right? Do I really think that some of these people on the right, someone like Mike Pompeo, you know, he always talks about China. Does he really care about Muslims? I mean, come on, man. They had the Muslim ban in America. Uh, Trump, all these neocons, they don't care about Islamophobia. They don't care about Muslims. What they're doing is a basically anti-China sentiment. Um, and it comes back, you know, there's a trade war going on with China right now. So we are literally just pawns in the game for them. Um, and this is why, like, I'm glad you raised this issue because there are some on the right who try and portray themselves as our uh, saviors overseas, you know, we're here to help the so-called, you know, the people overseas. But in their own 
doorsteps, you know, on their own doorsteps, we are seeing widespread Islamophobia. We're seeing the same narrative, but suddenly, you know, they, they've gone silent. So definitely, I'm glad you're, you're talking about this because it is about consistency. If you have a principle that Muslim people should not be targeted, you know, no one should be discriminated against because of their race or their religious beliefs, then why aren't you applying that to your own, you know, doorstep? Oh, yeah, but apparently, according to some of these guys, first of all, Islamophobia didn't exist, and now it only exists in China. Yeah. Whereas that, what happened in China didn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happened because of the dehumanization of Muslims by portraying them as an enemy within. And look at that. Did you see the tweet about um, from the Chinese embassy in the US where they said they were alleviating poverty in Xinjiang? Yeah. And what was happening was they were going to rescue Muslim women. That kind of rhetoric doesn't just exist in China. That's, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. If you don't tackle Islamophobia, this yeah. is what ends up ends up happening um, but what do you think about the critics then that turn around and say you know what you're trying to shut down to any debate around islam and you're, yeah, you're trying it's just silly isn't it like we're not here to have a you know we're not having a theological dispute i'm not here with some religious books here to debate atheists you know i'm not this ain't speaker's corner right we're talking about the discrimination against people who are perceived to be muslim because that's what i see at islamophobias and it's quite interesting because actually there was a girl from my university um, and she used to wear like a head covering because she had some sort of illness um, and she was a black Christian and she said I face so much Islamophobia I'm told you dirty Muslim get out of our country and ironically she's facing more Islamophobia than me simply because she looks perceived to be Muslim you know and it's crazy because in America some of the people who are targeted most by Islamophobia are the Sikh community yeah and the first person to die in a kind of hate crime after 9-11 from a guy who wanted to kill, I think he said towelheads or Muslims, but the first person to die was a Sikh man. And this is one of the interesting things I always say to people, they say, oh, it's not, okay, look, I get it. Muslims, yes, Islam's a faith, but in the process of Islamophobia, they end up being racialized. So for example, you know, when someone's mom or sister's walking in the street and, you know, Muslim women bear the brunt of Islamophobia, I should add. Yeah. And no one says that, yo, what's your ideology? Yeah. You know, they don't ask them about the ideology. Yeah. They attack them on the basis of their skin color and how they looked. In the same case with the Sikh man in America, he's not Muslim. Certainly there were certain cultural signifiers that people were looking for. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yes, and this idea that Muslims trying to shut down debate, like really, do you think, you know, this is a religion with centuries of, of kind of internal dissent and debate and, you know, different schools of thought and yeah. this arrogant idea that, you know, they, they can't do debate, so we're going to do, do it for them. It's just not really true. I mean, that's the other thing, right? They, they like to portray us as like some homogenous mass. Like, we all believe the same thing. I mean, you go to one of the mosques, like, there'd be so many different opinions, there'd be so many different viewpoints. Um, and this is the thing, right? I feel like Muslims are talked about, but are we really talked to? Like, you know, all these people who have these prejudice and they have these views about Muslims apparently myself and you are extremists or whatever by not even meeting us I mean how many of them have actually sat down and spoken to a Muslim about their concerns you know I'm always up for talking to someone who I disagree with you know as long as you know they're not there to physically attack or incite violence uh, but I don't think that same uh, you know courtesy extends on their side they're not willing to sit down and hear from our side and maybe yes the media you know, we don't get a fair hearing. But outside of the media, how many, you know, how much effort has been gone? If you have, if you want to know about Islam, 
you don't go to Wikipedia or you don't go to a non-Muslim YouTuber to learn about Islam. You go to the mosque, you speak to a Muslim. If you want to learn about how to build something, you ask a builder. If you want to learn about Islam, you ask a Muslim. It's common sense. Yeah, and the sad thing is that I remember, and I totally agree with you, I don't think we should ever kind of uh, cancel people for not knowing something or get angry with yeah. people for not knowing something. At the end of the day, we've got to find a way forward. And I remember, you know, I've said to other people, there was a man once when I was first, when I was a reporter, a local news reporter two years yeah. ago, I only became a journalist two and a half years ago. Um, and this man was kind of said to me, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, what's up? And he said, you know, are you Muslim? I said, yeah. And he said, look, is it true that uh, Muslims marry children? And I was like, no, look. And I explained to him the situation and like, the misconceptions. And he said, you know what? Thank you for like explaining to me and that, you know, but if you turned out and flipped out that person. Yeah, like, what the hell, what do you mean, bro? You know, it's not going to really make that change. So it's important that you should never lose faith. And that's why I love Malcolm X so much, that he's that embodiment of someone who changed through education, and became a massive civil rights activist. And, you know, you should never lose faith with someone that they might end up changing their views, just, you know, and you should engage with them. 100% agreed, you know. Um, and this is the thing, right? I feel as though the way the media depicts towns like Luton, for example, um, we're often depicted as we're having the two extremes. We have the al Mahajirun and we have the EDF. Well, I think the majority of us get along, working class, black, white, brown. Like we, we are going through similar things, you know, the levels of deprivation. Um, and I think it is in our best interest to challenge those who try and divide us. Because ultimately, like if we are united and if we are talking about these issues, you know, it's just common sense and you look for a solution. Um, the way, you know, the way Luton is depicted that there's these, you know, crazy tensions. They don't even yeah. know Bury Park, the area where all the Muslims are. That's where the football ground is. That's where, you know, all these so-called, you know, Muslims have taken over, whatever. It's just complete yeah. nonsense. It's a very multicultural area. Um, and I'd invite people to come down and see it because we have the best chicken and chips in the UK. <laughs> I'm not even, you know what I mean, bro? Like, I think we have a lot of talent, you know, generally in Luton, yeah. like aside from all the whatever. This is despite all the, all the, you know, social, and this is the key point that socioeconomically, more than four in 10 children in Luton live in poverty. It's one of the, yeah. you know, we've got massive cuts because of everything that's happened with the yeah. COVID 19 recession. But, yeah. you know, this is the town where, you know, socioeconomically, 46% of the Muslim community in the whole country, in England, sorry, live in 10 poorest local authority areas of. Of the country so and we'll be discussing this in well, next week's episode and whenever it's you know around covid and but no one wants to talk about kind of the poverty that's affecting the muslim community so always through the lens of extremism and i don't think that's going to help us in the long term now 100 you know and this is what we are hopefully going to be discussing on our next episode race class and covid how covid 19 has increased the class divide and how it's disproportionately affected ethnic minority community i'm really really looking forward to that Thank you so much, Basit, for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please check us out on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Thank you.